From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. When you were born, you were met with a smile, eye contact, and a meal. And ever since, when you're met with that, uh, you're transported back to the back to your most important point in your life and right. probably feel quite good. Don't slap them on the bum, though, probably. I've never thought about it. I'm Francine Lacqua, back in the London studio. And I'm David Merritt, also in the London studio. And this is In the City, Bloomberg's podcast that connects you to the stories at the heart of the city of London. So, Francine, last week we were going to do a Jubilee special all about the restaurant scene in London. And we were talking to Soren Yesen, who's the owner of One Lombard Street, which is a big city lunch institution, and Bill Knott, who's a Bloomberg food writer. And Bill had written this fantastic article about the power lunch being back in the city of London. So we went down to One Lombard, we pretended to drink martinis, uh, chinking water glasses, and had a long conversation. <laughs> I heard. And then we just thought, well, there are two things wrong with this. First of all, um, Francine's not here. I mean, and, I protested and a you lot. you protested, you were really upset. And we thought, we've just got to make this a bigger episode. There's so much to unpack about the restaurant scene in London, in the city, but also beyond. You cannot do a food episode without me. I'm like, the f- I feel like I'm the food queen because if I'm not eating it, I'm cooking it. And everybody loves London food. One of the questions is, do we have the right infrastructure? And actually, is, just, is it just too expensive? Yeah. And is the government helping or hindering? You know, when you compare it to cities around the world, um, the sort of government support that's gone in. And also, you know, in this country, we've got a bigger inflation problem than the rest of the G7. We've got a, a worse economic outlook and you know London rents are still sky high you can't get the staff of course Brexit is still being felt um, is it a good time to open a restaurant or not so we're getting our two star guests back right they're coming back and we're gonna speak without the martinis here in the studio without the martinis or the Negronis but we will go off-site or you'll go off-site but <laughs> <laughs> I demanded, Dave. The reality is that we demanded to do some field reporting for this episode. So stay tuned for a report from Sweetings. Dave has been, I've never been. It's actually considered the oldest fish and oyster restaurant in London. And it's conveniently right next door to Bloomberg HQ here okay. in the heart of the city of London. But first, our conversation with Soren and Bill. Bill, we were trying to think about what London was as a food capital. How does it compare to other European capitals? I think we have an awful lot of breadth. Perhaps not quite the same depth, but I think you can eat more cuisines in London probably, I mean, by, uh, by far than in any other European capital I can think of. Uh, partly because we don't have an awful lot of British or English restaurants. So, Because English food isn't very nice. So. <laughs> I think what we call modern British is fine, but that borrows an awful lot from the French, the from Italian the Italians. Italian smiling at that. Yeah. You know. Whereas if you go to Rome, as you well know, you will find uh, almost all Italian restaurants. There will be a few others. France and Paris, the same. Sorry, Dave, you don't like the jellied eel? I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of pie and mash, but... Um, uh, I'm not sure about it. It's not surprising the Cockneys took so readily to rationing during the Second World War, I think. So, Bill, does it have more Michelin stars than other 
parts in Europe, or it feels like you have to, you know, remortgage your house sometimes to be able to live in London. <laughs> I know eating out is expensive, but then try Paris. Paris isn't cheap either. Um, I'm sure Paris has more Michelin stars than we do. It certainly has more three-star Michelin restaurants. Uh, but London's sort of catching up, and we have a lot of interest around the one-star level. Um, I think uh, with a, a whole host of different cuisines, um, we have uh, Chinese restaurants with one star. We have uh, we now have a uh, Ikoi, which is an African restaurant, sort of based on mm. sort of a modern take on Nigerian food with uh, two stars. So it's a, it's a, for, for a curious gourmet, um, it's a fascinating city. And have you seen a change, Soren, since you know those twenty three years with and and opening one Lombard right here in the city? I mean, you would never come to the city twenty years ago for a great meal, would you? No, I think you wouldn't come here unless you worked here. And then you'd um, try and get out of here as quickly as possible when work was over and head for the West End. Or, um, and certainly not, there were, there were no, n nothing exciting going on in terms of food 20, 23 years ago. When I opened one Lombard Street, there was lots of people who said, um, forget about it. And those who didn't say forget about it said, um, the city is a graveyard for people who have tried to develop an evening business. I thought that was very heartening, but... Um, <laughs> but you did it anyway. <laughs> we're right? still here, and we've even got breakfast as well, which is great. So, so you opened in 1998, yeah. right, One Lombard Street. You're, you were awarded the Square Mile's first Michelin star. That's right. When was that? What did it feel like? Um, it felt amazing, and it's, it's, a, it's a really um, big incentive for staff, mainly. I find that it still is for staff, uh, mainly, and um, maybe over the years, less so for... Uh, for guests, I think when when people didn't go out as much, they'd be in search of a treat that would blow their minds. Um, now most people go out two or three times a week and are not in the mood for that kind of intense experience. Maybe it's a, it's a six-monthly experience or twice a year. Actually, it, it represents the change in hospitality throughout London. Um, which, which is what, atmosphere? It's much think? more about the. It's about much more than the food. It's about the ambience, the service, and something you would like to experience several times a week. And the, and the people you meet there, presumably as well, because Bill, you wrote about the you know the return of the power lunch in the city, and of course you know it's, we, everyone's come back to work, or, or companies are trying to get people back to work, but you know coming in for a meal, are, are people coming in less for the meal and actually to do business? They're coming to meet their colleagues and to actually. They certainly strike are. A I mean, you, strike a deal. Yeah, I mean you, you're not going to come into the city and, and sit in front of a screen all day. You can mm. do that at home. We do. Right. <laughs> yeah, I do. But you still life. get to go out for lunch yeah. occasionally. Um, and that's yeah. what people seem to be doing now, which is great. So, you know, as Soren said to me, if you want to close a deal, don't do it over Zoom, do it over lunch. Are you seeing people coming into this bit of London and staying and having full, you know, the full evening with lots of bottles of wine? And There is that. Yeah. I, people come in to go out, as Bill said. So if they come in for three days, they tend to go out, breakfast, lunch and dinner, possibly. There's no way anyone... So they're, going out, they're going out to eat three times a day. Monday to <laughs> Who are these people? I want to meet these people. <laughs> and what do they do? <laughs> and what do they do for a living? But I, th but I think Soren's right when he stresses the ambiance and any restaurant right now, because it's tough times for restaurants, prices are going up, overheads are going up. If you don't give people a warm welcome and remind people of why they fell in love with restaurants in the first place and give them something more than we, we got used to these meal kits during lockdown, you know, that's uh, such a tiny fraction of what a restaurant offers, a good restaurant offers. Uh, so if you don't, if you don't smile, um, you're going to lose your customers. Sorry, what was lockdown like? Did you ever feel like you, um, know, you couldn't cope? It, it was uh, as bad as you can imagine. It was overnight saddled with a very, very busy machine churning out expenses and zero income. 
And it stayed pretty much like that for two years, only interrupted by some signals sometimes that we could open again and have some customers back. And every time we were closed back down, it was start and stop, and it was very difficult. Did you feel like you had government support, help, I dare say? Um, I, I don't feel that much. I think there was government confusion. Like Everyone was confused from the start. And it meant that we had to survive on our own. And um, those, of, those businesses who could um, find capital and um, support the business have survived. Mm. And a lot of businesses who couldn't, not because they were bad businesses, they haven't survived. I mean, I'll give you a comparison. I have colleagues who have restaurants in New York, Paris, and London in New York. Uh, for the same size restaurant. Over the course of the pandemic, they got a million dollars of support to keep the uh, business going and to keep the, the jobs going. In Paris, they got 400,000 euros. In London, they got 16,000 pounds. So it reflects a different attitude, doesn't it, in these cities to, to the restaurant industry overall and the importance of it to the city. Do you think London, I guess it's the councils, isn't it, and it's the government as a whole, don't appreciate and support the, the hospitality industry as they should? I think you're right. Take outdoor seating, for instance. Um, there's masses of amounts of spaces that are unutilized that could earn an income and pay tax. You know, if we put tables and chairs outside, we would have two and or three COVID, more jobs. They, they ripped out the rules, right? And every pavement was covered in... in for in a short while. And then a lot, of, a lot of those permissions have been pulled back. I mean, we, we felt that on Lombard Street, there's a, there's a completely empty alleyway next door, which we've applied for. And um, we, we keep being rejected on the basis of the government public put this, safety. They put it in the Queen's speech. It was, it was, there, was a, there was a line in the Queen's speech or it was an addendum to the Queen's speech saying that... Uh, so Her Majesty wants yeah, alfresco exactly. dining, right? Wants alfresco yeah. dining for her and the corgis. <laughs> right. Marmalade sandwiches all round. Yeah, in yeah. a handbag. Well, I, I, and I think you're right. I think this is perhaps to do with uh, London, well, Britain generally, not treating, our, not treating food as culture. Yeah. But this uh, was not, I mean, it's not in the British culture, right, no. to eat outside al fresco. I mean, f for one, the weather is not always clement. It's not necessarily helpful. The weather, no, but yeah. you can go to Copenhagen or you can go to Amsterdam and you'll find more percentage of tables outside than you do in London. In, uh, more uh, in Copenhagen, I'm, I'm from Denmark, in Copenhagen, during winter, the whole of Nuhan is full of um, outdoor right. seating with heaters and blankets and people sitting outside, just like they do after ski. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, it, it's just a matter of maximizing what you have got uh, now that you have fewer days. If you're in the city, you have fewer days to, to um, take the money to pay for the rent and uh, pay your staff. Then uh, it would be nice to have other things helping you out of this also to um, make up for the losses over two years. Um, and the visibility of a restaurant without door seating um, helps all the trade. It's not just those tables outside, even if you just had them sitting there with a couple of people enjoying a glass of wine. F fewer days because people work from home more, and so they're in the yes, city Yes, the week has been compressed to three days, really. I mean, it's massively busy. Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Friday, dead. Monday's quite busy. In fact, some people are now saying they'd rather come in Monday and Friday because it's too busy on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So hopefully it'll even out a little bit. So, so that's, if that's where we've landed in terms of the working week, I mean, there are, there are still big sort of storm clouds, aren't there, on the horizon for the economy. Inflation is a massive problem, particularly, I think Britain's got the worst inflation profile and growth profile out of the G7 at the moment. I mean, what's happening to your costs and how are you able to 
absorb them or or not? And is there going to be another wave of restaurant closures with the economic circumstances? Well, I mean, let's start with um, the two biggest ones, staff cost and premises cost. And staff cost has um, gone up 20, 30%. That, generally speaking, I think most restaurants will have passed on. um, There's nothing in the margin to give. Um, So it's more expensive to go out. The second thing, premises cost, depends on who you speak to. Generally speaking, the market had, was completely overheated before lockdown. It, it was very competitive and um, expensive. I think there's a little bit of a reset in the property market, and it may be a sense of more reasonable rents around the corner. But what about energy? Because I mean, that's the thing that's really hurting everyone, isn't it? I well, mean, energy is, is, is outrageous. I mean, I, I can give you an example from Ekta, my Nordic restaurant here in Bloomberg Arcade. If you have some spare electricity to uh, send our way, I'd be very happy. (laughs) We we paid £3,000 a month for our electricity bill. Last month, it was £10,000. So, what's your your biggest headache? I mean, energy, food shortage. I mean, I, I can't get a table to places where I want to go. So, it feels like the restaurant business is is doing okay. It is. It is doing okay. But the challenge is now that you have compression of demand and then spiraling cost, which you, we are lucky compared to other industries because we can we can more or less pass it on, not all of it. Um, but the other side of it is we have been forced to, and this is good news, we've been forced to look for efficiencies that maybe we were a little bit slow at finding before. And that is, I think that's very exciting. You know, it's a way we, we deal with um, the flow of staff in the restaurant, the ordering and the payment. Come out leaner at the end. I remember being at a book launch for Indra Noy, the former PepsiCo chief executive, and she was joking that actually she was in a fancy hotel and couldn't get room service because they just didn't have enough staff. Now, this was about 12 months ago. Soren, has it, you know, is, is it just as difficult to get staff um, it was um, it, near impossible, and now it's um, just very difficult. And there's a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. There's an enormous shortage of skilled workers, and um, the government's policy on this, I have to say, uh, 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 it's got to change. And it's because of Brexit, right? Is that, or, or it's that's p- it's partly because of Brexit. Brexit has certainly not helped. And when I've got um, several Danish people lined up to work in a Scandinavian restaurant here, and I can't hire them, it seems ridiculous when we can't get anyone. Um, so we, if we got 80 CVs for a senior job um, position before, we get three now. And it's and those three are generally not as qualified. On top of that, the people who turn up, they, a lot of people don't turn up for interviews. Some people turn up for interviews and we never hear back. Um, because and this they're is not, busy? Or because what, also, they've accepted another job? Well, there's also a change in mentality. I think with a lot of the a digital uh, online culture, you know, you, it's easy to cancel something with, with just a flick of the thumb. You don't really have to, there's no courtesy involved. Are we in a crossroads where people want to go out and party when inflation is going up so you don't really know what happens in the next 12 months? Well, there could be a little bit of, uh, a, a lot of the roaring 20s and then um, hopefully with um, um, hindsight and we're not going to repeat the end of the roaring 20s with a big crash. But. I think in, in terms of if restaurants offer, right now it's, it's, it's amazing, but if restaurants offer something, good atmosphere, um, jolly good service, and you feel welcome, good food, fair value prices in a good location, 
um, I think there's prospect for doing very well over the next many years. Bill, you see, you see the pipeline of new openings across the city. Is that yeah. is there still stuff coming? Are people still p- putting in money and investment into new openings, or is that starting to dry up a bit? No, they really are, and some quite exciting things. I mean, there has been a big churn, especially in the mid market where I think a lot of operators, uh, chain operators in particular, weren't doing enough to keep the Mm. customers. And so a lot of the chain restaurants have have closed down. But that, in turn, opens up premises. I saw, for example, Thomas Parry, a very gifted chef proprietor at uh, Brat, just up the road from here in Shoreditch, has taken over an old Byron Burger site in Beak Street in Soho. So less of the kind of the cookie-cutter chains, more independent, innovative restaurants. That's got to be a good thing, isn't it? I think that's... uh, uh, And, you know, it's a buyer's market as far as, as... as far as uh, diners are concerned, because uh, a lot of places that don't make the effort um, are going to be shutting their doors. Soren, you had a fun anecdote about uh, someone partying for like a month in your restaurant or something? <laughs> well, he yeah. didn't that was even, Bill. That was us. Well, no, yeah, there was a member of staff. Was, no, they, um, <laughs> there was a, he did leave in between, but he did, um, uh, he booked our, our new private member's cocktail bar for private lunch. Uh, and... Um, had a big lunch there and we could hardly get them out when they were having Negronis at 6.30 still um, and they moved PM upstairs PM after PM. lunch yes <laughs> <laughs> they moved upstairs and continued in the not in lockdown, Dome Bar and the Brasserie but not only that um, as he left he booked for next Wednesday and for next Wednesday and he booked two Wednesdays uh, a month for the next three months uh, same lunch same same room and he thought, why, why go anywhere else? He seemed to okay, feel loyal custom. And it made it very, very easy for everyone. What's your top tip going to a restaurant? I was always told, you know, choose a second bottle of wine on the list. Uh, yeah, that, 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 I'm afraid restaurants mm-hmm. got Is wise that- to that one about 20 years ago. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I've been think- buying the second one for 20 <laughs> years, Bill. <laughs> um, every, every, wine, every good wine list should have um, the obvious expensive choice for people who like that. Should have... the um, the value choice for people who love that. And also, which I like, is to find the um, interesting wine, which is really well-priced for people who know about wine. So there's something for everyone. And I, I actually, if there is a, a wine waiter or sommelier, I often say, I'd like to spend 50, 50 pounds. Um, I like white burgundy. And then I say, well, good luck. No. <laughs> <laughs> but... You know, give, give them uh, a price and a taste and then ask them to come up with a suggestion. Okay, can I ask you all, including Dave Merritt, a question about what's your secret sauce to host the best dinner party there is? Soren. This is, this is a great question because it, it, um, it reverses it into restaurants. The most important ingredient is the people you mix. And that's the thing you don't have any control over in a restaurant, but you do. And, of course, the next ingredient is a lot of booze and some uh, nice food. And then I think you're off, um, even if the seats are uncomfortable. But if you don't have great people, it's going to be hard, with no matter how good the food or the drink is. And in a restaurant, when you, especially if you're a new restaurant, you have no control over who comes into the room and you have no control over who you're seating people next to. So the atmosphere in a new restaurant is going to be a little bit like that. Whereas if you have an established restaurant full of regulars, you can do that. You can treat it as a dinner party. And we drizzle the room with people. We put them in the seats they want. We, put, we never put people from the same organization back to back next to each other. And you, you mix it like that. And you, have, you don't put a romantic couple right next to a couple who's about to close a deal. And if you don't think about these things, you only have two out of the three main ingredients. What's your secret, Bill? Um, as far as dinner parties go, I would say 
the most the biggest mistake people make is to make it too elaborate and spend all their time in the kitchen or fussing or fanning about and and um, actually just make sure you've prepared things sensibly um, and make sure you've got time to talk to your guests um, and that's that's the secret sauce that's uh, that's what oils the wheels of a good dinner party is making sure that everybody's happy everybody's drinks topped up and everybody's getting on well with each other um, the food is um, the food can still be wonderful but uh, but don't end up doing everything a la minute as they say cuisine française <laughs> I'm going to try and get an invite to Dave Merritt's house for dinner yeah, well, what can know, I expect my, 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 my secret is to ask Mrs Merritt to do the cooking I think not me so um, I'll, I'll make the Negroni. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you, Soren. Thank you. Oh, thanks. I'm so hungry after all that conversation. I wanted to take Dave out for lunch, but he's double booked. He stood and, me up for lunch. And I already ate. And actually, you probably don't like the roll mops. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Like, well, I do like fish, but just not the roll mops. But not the, the jellied eel. I, I don't know who I'm going to take. I'm actually going to take the cynical American in the newsroom. Good idea. Out to Sweetings with me. What are we doing here? <laughs> I'm bringing you, yeah. one and only Oliver Crook, to the oldest fish restaurant in London. The oldest give you, fish restaurant in London. In London, to give you jellied eels. Jellied eels? <laughs> and roll mops. What is that? Roll mops. Roll mops? I think it's called roll mops. All right, well, we'll have to ask them. <laughs> We're going to, uh, I can see it now, Sweetings. It's at, uh, I'd say, about 100 paces from the office. Is that about fair? I mean, we come in and it's a fairly um, a savory uh, smell in the atmosphere, in the, in the air. No reservation required, which is uh, a breath of fresh air for me. I mean, I think we were quite lucky to actually find room and space. Hi, so how long have you been working here for? Um, almost six years. Did you want to come to Sweetings in particular because it's such an iconic it's, restaurant? For me, it's the family business. So my grandparents own the restaurant. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of this place? It's the oldest fish restaurant. Yes. So it's over 100 years old, well over 100 years old. The late 1800s, people come in maybe 50 years ago. They come in and they say it's exactly the same as they remember. What should we drink? We do a black velvet, which is our speciality, which is champagne and Guinness. Champagne and Guinness, yeah. We've run into Simon French, one of our regulars on TV. Should we get his call on Euro Yen, or should we just ask him what he thinks about Sweetings? I think we should ask him about the black velvet. Right, fair enough. How often do you come here? Come here, not regularly enough. And you love it because? It's just old British restaurant with good food and just like this, we could have come here 80 years ago it'd be exactly the same I mean we always speak to something about the economy but actually food is just, it's just as <laughs> I'm good I'm very happy to go <laughs> tour restaurants in the square mile and oh, do yeah. food reviews I mean arguably that's what the listeners want more isn't it in my view or maybe it's even lovely to that's not true but we'll do both we'll do both, we'll do both. In general, the London food scene, how does it compare? So what I get upset about is not so much the food scene, but more kind of the, the experience, right? Here, what I loved, we walked in, it wasn't a question about reservation, because they don't take reservations. So you can show up and actually do something spontaneous, where like most of the time, you're shackled by this kind of having to book something weeks and weeks and weeks in advance, which I find heartbreaking. And usually you only have the table for like two hours and a half? Two hours and a half. They love it. They love telling you the clock's going the second you sit down. Wow. So this is, what, it, what do we call this? 
this vessel that this has arrived in, this, uh, the half pint, because this is made out of silver. Not most of the half pints I've had are made out of silver. Look at that. Wow. Yeah, that's a, I think it's a tankard, I guess they call it. A tankard. It's amazing. Yeah. That's a nice sound. It's a nice sound. I feel like I'm drinking out of the Holy Grail. I'd like, to drink, I'd like to drink to 100 years of Sweetings and 100 years of uh, Francine Lockwell. 100 years of a podcast on the 100 UK. 100 years of uh, In the City. I'm David Merritt. And I'm Francine Lacroix. And that is it for this week's episode of In the City. We will be back next week asking the question, is London really open for crypto business? Lord Philip Hammond joins us. And in the meantime, if you like the show, please rate it and check out the Bloomberg UK website for more news and views. This episode was produced by Sabasadi. Special thanks to our guests, Soren Yesin and Bill Knotts, and to Oliver Crook for the company at lunch. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thank you.